The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 to 9. Um, And in in the course of history right now, God's people are uh, currently their own sovereign nation, uh, but they're pretty hard-pressed from the nations around them. Um, And Isaiah is kind of playing the role of the doomsday prophet, uh, predicting the coming exile. Uh, But here in chapter 60, he's actually, he's already predicted the exile, and now he's actually predicting the return from the exile. Um, And a little bit more than that, um, it was... uh, described to me uh, once upon a time from somebody who said that uh, an analogy of like the mountains. If any of you have been near the mountains, you can see uh, close up, you can see the smaller mountains, the, the mountains that are smaller and closer to you. At the same time, you can see the larger, farther away mountains, and they all are kind of there together, the smaller, closer ones and the bigger, farther away ones. And, uh, and Isaiah is kind of doing that here. I'll point it out when we get there. So verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And I know this is a page turn, but if I can actually have you stay on that page. Uh, this is what I was talking about. So in, in verse 4, you can see he's talking about your sons and your daughters coming back. Uh, and that's kind of alluding to the return from exile. Your, your children have been taken from you into exile, and here they're coming back. Uh, but in verse 3, it talks about the nations coming to your light and kings. That's not the return from the exile. Uh, that's something bigger. Uh, where all nations will be gathering together under the banner of the one true king. Um, So it's kind of both of those things juxtaposed on top of each other. Okay, uh, verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. These are all places really well known for their specific riches. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. So again, here it's talking about the return from exile. And actually, when, when the Israelites did come back from exile, um, Babylon did send them with gold and silver to kind of get restarted uh, back in their homeland. Uh, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle is from Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And this is uh, kind of the fulcrum of the previous two readings. The Old Testament reading was a uh, prediction, uh, along with the return from the exile, the bigger prediction of a time when all nations would unite under that banner of the one true God, not just the ethnic Jews, but all nations. Um, And then the epistle reading, we we saw this kind of happening through Paul spreading the gospel, where he's spreading it not just to the ethnic Jews, but to all nations. Um, And here in the the gospel reading is where that, that change starts happening, where it changes from being that future prediction to being reality, when it all hinges here on Jesus. So verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, so uh, yeah, it's Advent, and we're done with Philippians. And this is a good... So so let me just tell you what we're going to do the next four weeks, the four Sundays of Advent. Uh, We're going to talk about... Uh, this anticipation, Advent is about anticipation, right? Dave talked this morning when he was explaining the Old Testament readings. There's this, there's this anticipation before Jesus comes that God would set things right, that he would send the one who was going to vindicate his people and put things right. And then Jesus comes and we know how that's happening now, but there's still, there's this other part of Advent. So that part's very Christmassy, right? Like you're, you're, you're looking forward to uh, celebrating Christmas. And we all kind of feel that with Advent. It's that, it's this sort of prelude to Christmas, which is very exciting. There's also embedded within Advent this anticipation for Jesus returning someday again and completing what he started when he came the first time. So, so Jesus comes and he, uh, is born and he lives and he dies and he rises from the dead in order to bring about the kingdom of God to kick the whole thing off. And he's in the process, I mean, he guarantees that the cross and the empty tomb are the guarantee that Christ rules and reigns over everything. But now he's in this process that you and I are living in, where he's bringing this about slowly but surely in our lives, and in the life of our church, and in the life of Glenn Carbon, and all over the whole world. And we're looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and seals the deal, and makes all things new brings to fruition what he started on the cross and from the empty tomb. And so there's that part of Advent too. 
us anticipating now, even now, as, even as we look back, N.T. Wright says it's like riding a bike. The, 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 the weight, you're putting your weight on the rear wheel when you're riding the bike, and the rear wheel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The front wheel, though, which guides us on the bike, which you turn to steer the bike, is the second coming of Jesus. It's the, the new creation. It's the hope of all things made new. A world where peace and justice and righteousness are the coin of the realm. And that's going to guide us. And we're going to focus on that front wheel. Even as in the years to, uh, the, the, the following year, we're going to put more emphasis on the back wheel. What are, what are we looking forward to and what's kind of guiding us? What's that front wheel that's guiding how we live our lives now? There's four things. I want to talk about this morning about God's power. And the next week, I want to talk about God's forgiveness. And then week three, I want to talk about God's people, this hope of a new community. And then in the Sunday right before Christmas, I want to talk about God's presence, the, the, the desire for God to, to be this barrier that you and I feel between us and God, where you just, sometimes you just don't even know if he's there, or if he, we believe he's there sometimes, but sometimes we don't know. And even when we believe he's there, sometimes it's hard to believe that he's actually hearing us. This desire for God to be present with us. If I was, look, if I was a cheesy uh, preacher, I would make the second, uh, the second week God's pardon instead of God's forgiveness. And then they would all start with P. And you guys would be like, man, this guy is good. This is like radio preacher stuff. But I can't do it. I just can't. It's too cheesy. So instead of pardon, I'm going to say forgiveness. And, uh, hopefully those of you, uh, who are, uh, right thinking kind of people will respect me for that. And those of you who wish that I had done the peas, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's cheesy and immature. So today, let's talk about God's power. So I talk in here a lot about power and about how the kingdom of God speaks challenge to the power structures of our world. The, the economic system promising you guys that if you play ball with it, it will make you happy is a lie. The political parties promising you guys that if you put your hopes in them and you commit to them with all your heart, they can give you what you want. Now, so sometimes I talk about power in such a way that it might seem like power is completely negative. And it's not. Power, of course, is a good thing when it's used for good purposes, right? And that's the kind of power I want to talk about today. The power of Jesus used for good purposes. Look, there's things about your life and my life that are broken, that are empty, that feel shallow, that feel like they need work, all of us. We need power, some sort of power to fix those things. And what I'm going to argue for this morning is, is that God in Jesus provides that power to fix your life, to fix your life. So let's look at the epistle reading, if you can, with me. And let's start and let's, let's jump down a couple of verses to verse 16. Uh, super famous text, like for, for those of you who uh, grew up Christian, especially for those of you, uh, and I'm not talking to all of you, I, I get that. And um, but for those of you who grew up in a church like this, this is a kind of famous text. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's. Uh, can we look at verse 16 for a second and unpack it a little bit if we can? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul uses that word gospel. I've talked about this in here. This is not going to be new news for a lot of you. A gospel, that's a churchy word, right? I mean, that's the kind of word that you say when you're wanting to sound like a religious person. Um, what is gospel? What, what is the gospel? 
In the ancient world, the gospel, again, this is review for some of you. In the ancient world, the gospel is a technical term. It's an announcement that a king or a queen is ruling or has solidified their reign. It is not a religious word. It's not a Christian word in the ancient world. It's much, much older than Christianity. It's much, much older than Jesus. Uh, it's, there, there's uses of it in Greek and in Hebrew, for instance, 500 years before Jesus was born. In fact, in the psalm that we read uh, this morning, uh, the word gospel shows up. In the Old Testament reading that we used, read this morning, the word gospel shows up. It's, in both of those places, it's translated good news or glad news. It's actually the technical term for gospel. If I tell you, again, a review, if I tell you that we're going to have uh, sunny weather and it's going to be in the 70s next week, that's good news, but it's not gospel. If I tell you that the Cardinals are going to win the World Series next year, for a lot of you, that's good news, but it's not necessarily gospel. In the ancient world, what gospel is, is an announcement that a new king is reigning and we're safe. Or the new king just won a battle and the kingdom is growing. Or the king and queen just had a baby girl and the new queen was born last night. These are all announcements because they have to do with king stuff and queen stuff, okay? So when Jesus co-ops this term in Mark 1 and he says, the time is at hand and the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe in the gospel, everybody around him is hearing politics. Caesar's on his way out. And God is on his way in to be the new king. It's revolutionary language. Paul is using, using that language in the exact same way. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of this pronouncement that God in Jesus Christ is now king and rules over everything. But, but now you, hopefully you get it. If, if we think about it just for a second, you'll get why Paul needs to preface that with, because I'm not ashamed. Because the fact is, it's kind of an embarrassing thing to say that Jesus is Lord of the universe, when everybody in Paul's day knows, no, Rome off Jesus. He's gone. And by the way, Paul, in case you haven't checked, Caesar still sits on the throne. So Paul's announcement that Jesus is the king, his gospel announcement, can be embarrassing. It would be like if your favorite candidate, so, so let's say you voted for Donald Trump. In, or, no, no, change that. You didn't vote for Donald Trump. Donald Trump won the last election and you insisted on saying for the next four years, no, it's, it's really okay. He's not really the president. The person I voted for was Hillary Clinton is really the president. We were like, okay, so uh, you're making some sort of statement. No, no, I really believe that Hillary Clinton is actually the president. It's going to be okay. Donald Trump's not actually in charge. Hillary Clinton's calling the shots. People would stop making eye contact with you. People would start to avoid you because you're a crazy person, right? That Paul talks like a crazy person. He's saying, okay, I know that Caesar's sitting on the throne. I know that the Roman soldiers are walking the streets. I know that at different times in our history, we're hiding when we worship Jesus. But I'm telling you, Jesus is king, and he's completely in charge of everything. That's crazy person talk. And Paul has to say, I'm working up the courage to be able to say this out loud. I'm not ashamed. I will, I, I will proudly say that Jesus is the king of the world, even though if you just walk around and look around and talk to people and read the newspaper and listen to the radio, you know it doesn't look like Jesus is the king of the world. The gospel announcement is actually foolishness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. So it's something that when he says, he assures his listeners, I'm not ashamed of this. Okay, and so now you and I, we're going to continue to insist. This is what the gospel is for me and you. We're going to continue to insist that Jesus is in charge of everything, even though so many parts of your life and my life look like that's not the case. 
even though it looks like your bad finances are in charge of everything or your bad health is in charge of everything or your thought patterns of anxiety and depression, which you cannot escape, are in charge of everything. You, as a believer, are going to announce the gospel and you're not going to be ashamed to announce. I refuse to acknowledge the lordship of all these different things that are trying to get my allegiance. Jesus is the king. That's the gospel. So, so I haven't yet talked about like what good does that do you besides just sort of like head in the sand, naive thinking. There's actually, it's going to accomplish something. We'll see that in just a few minutes, all right? For right now, let's just let it stand. For Christians, announcing that Jesus is the king of the universe is what it means to be a Christian against the apparent facts that we see in the world around us. Because, here's the payout, okay? Because this gospel, look at verse 16 again, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The announcement that Jesus is king does two things. One, it convinces yourself and it convinces everybody else by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus really is king. And two, the announcement that Jesus is king, as foolish as that seems to you, it's the tool that God uses. It's his word that actually brings about Jesus' kingdom against all odds, against all appearances. The announcement that Jesus is Lord, the announcement that Jesus is king, that's the gospel, actually brings about that very same kingdom. And now here's the gutsy thing that I have to say to you. And that's the answer to this question. What does the word save mean? It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So gospel is power for salvation. What do we mean by salvation? In the Bible, what is salvation? Well, what isn't salvation? Let me run through a list of things for you. In Acts 7, Stephen's telling the story of the Exodus with Moses. And he says, Moses, when Moses went down to Egypt and announced to his brothers and sister Israelites that God is now king and that Pharaoh's on his way out, he thought that they would understand, this is Acts 7, he thought that they would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. God was giving them salvation by liberating them from slavery. Socioeconomic oppression, that's salvation, getting delivered from that. I'm not going to spiritualize that for you because if you're an ancient Israelite and you're a slave and you're being forced to do something and not getting paid for it, it actually isn't very spiritual. It's your day-to-day physical existence that you need to be saved from. That's one thing that salvation means. There's a battle in 1 Samuel 14. Israel's fighting the Philistines. God rescues them and saves the day. And 1 Samuel 14, 23 says this, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It's not spiritual, is it? They were in a battle. They were about to lose. God pulls it out at the end. That's salvation. In fact, by the way, uh, this this goes along with the, the, the Isaiah text that David read for us this morning. Salvation in the Old Testament is almost always military. It's almost always military or political. Look, we're fighting this battle or we're slaves to a foreign power. And we need God to save us. Look, they're not thinking about getting to heaven when they die. They're thinking, I'm in slavery and I need to get out of here. I'm lined up here in battle with my sword drawn and I'm about to be killed. I need God to save me. Mark chapter 10, Jesus heals a blind guy and he says this to him, go your way, your faith has saved you. And immediately the blind guy recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He uses the word saved. What does he mean there? He means something super practical. The guy's blind. The guy cannot subsist in that society without his sight unless he just resorts to begging. Jesus gives him all that back, and Jesus calls that salvation. Another example, Matthew 14, 
Peter's walking on the water. Remember this story. Jesus calls Peter out of the boat to walk on the water. When Peter sees the wind, he was afraid and begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. Is Peter asking this? Is Peter saying, I'm about to drown Jesus, and when I drown, I want you to take me to heaven when I die? Peter's not saying that. Peter's saying, God, I don't want to drown. Jesus, help me right now. Don't let me drown. Save me from dying. Job 5, verse 15. Job says this, God saves the needy from the hand of the mighty so that the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. God saves the needy so that the poor have hope. God saves people from poverty. Matthew chapter 1, this is the one that we all think about, right? In Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph and says, you're going to call this baby's name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. A lot of time we as Christians, we talk about salvation in terms of we need to be rescued from our sins, or we need, to, we, we, need to, we need to know that when we die, we're not going to go to hell. We're going to go to heaven. But salvation is way more multifaceted than that in Scripture. There's way more there for you. There's salvation from poverty. There's salvation from sickness. There's salvation from drowning. There's salvation from enemies trying to kill you. So what I'm trying to say, so let me just say this explicitly as I can. Jesus is going to save you from everything. Everything that's wrong with your life. Think for just a second about everything that you don't like about your life. And a lot of it's super big stuff, and some of it's just little minor stuff. Every single one of those things, Jesus is going to save you from that. And now I've got to say, I'm not ashamed to say that, because I actually kind of am a little bit embarrassed to say that to you. I'm embarrassed to speak. I know, I know some of your lives, and I know that the brokenness that you deal with, and a lot of you know my life, and you know the brokenness that I deal with. And for me and you to say to each other, hey, everything that's wrong with you, Jesus is going to fix. That's actually scary and seems a little bit naive. Seems a little bit like something that the four-year-olds would say down in Sunday school after this. This is what Paul is saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel will fix everything in your life. Now, who is this for? This is for everybody who believes, right? Look in verse, at uh, the very end of verse 16. To everyone who believes. Now, why? So you, you, those of you who are Christians, and again, those of you who are members of this church, but this is something that you're fairly comfortable with, the notion that this salvation goes to people who believe in Jesus. Why would it work like that? The answer is because God's righteousness is the only thing that can save us. That's verse 18, right? The righteousness of God is revealed. I don't want you to think morally right now. The word righteousness in the Bible is almost always, especially in the Old Testament, a relational term. Are you right with me? Shanna and I, we're right with each other now. Like this is, we've had a hard time in our relationship. That's if you've been in the past sermons, that'll be a sort of a joke to you. Shanna's been my foil of somebody who I've disagreed with. Like if I'm having a problem with somebody, we're not right with each other. That's not righteous. You and I got a problem with God. And the problem is, is we don't believe in him. We don't trust him. We don't have a great relationship with him. We're unrighteous in that relationship. But God is always righteousness. And in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. In other words, God is faithful to this relationship that we have with him, even when we're not. Even when you're like, I don't know if I can do this whole Christianity thing anymore. I don't even know if I believe the stuff that's in the Bible. God is being faithful to you. He is committed to you in such a way that his righteousness is covering up my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness. 
practically speaking, let's, let's, let's take that truth. That's the gospel truth. Let's take that back to the notion of God fixing everything that's wrong in our lives. We have to realize that the things that I do to fix my problems are just me magnifying my unrighteousness. Okay. I'll give you a couple examples real quick here. So I went out to, a lot of you know, Pastor Lang preached for us last week. I was not here. I was in Denver. And I was uh, hanging out at this church in Denver, one of our sister churches. And I went out there under the pretenses of talking to their pastors and elders about how their church is, like their church government structure. I know that sounds boring. Some of it is boring. And because that's kind of the structure that we would like to have here at St. James. And they're an LCMS church that's pulling it off and growing and thriving with the structure. And it wasn't long before I got out there that I realized that, okay, so we talked about that. But there were issues that I was struggling with that I had struggled with. And I had just come to the conclusion that this is who I am. I'm just going to live with it. One of the big issues was this. I don't love you guys enough. I don't love my congregation. I don't love my elders enough. Now, I like all of you. I seriously, I've got positive feelings for all of you. And I think that I'm not an idiot. I think that I can read people. I think that you have positive feelings for me. I was actually just being sort of content with that. I was calling that biblical love. Like, we all, we get along here. And I really do like you. I like hanging out in your houses. I like talking... But I, I was holding back from giving my life to you in real practical ways. And I just sort of like been satisfied with that because I can't do it. I'm too selfish. That means I've got to give up a lot of time. That means I've got, so a lot of those of you who know me really close, you know, I'm super introverted. Like I, and if you just talk to me, like I can fake it when we're shaking hands. I can be outgoing and slap your back. It kills me to talk a lot. It really does. Now, not like this, but if you and I are having a conversation, or especially if it's like one-on-four conversation, it wears me out. I cannot, I do not have the emotional strength or the physical strength to like invest in your lives like God has called me to do. And I realized that when I was out there, that I'd been trying to do it, got worn out, and just sort of settled for, I like them, they like me. That's love, isn't it? And it's not. I can't do it. I need the righteousness of God to do it. I need God's strength to do this through me and for me because I just don't have the power. I'll give you another example. Oh, Catherine isn't here. Okay. So just, uh, this is just between me and you, Catherine. Okay. So C- Catherine's in my senior religion class. And what, I hate, it, it, the worst way that you could insult me would be to say, Oh, your sermons are nice, but, uh, they're a little long and a little bit boring. Like, if I think that I'm boring, I'm horrified. And Catherine will tell you, like, we have a boring issue in senior religion right now. Like, it's boring. And the students tell me it's boring. I can't actually make it not boring. I've tried. Like, I've tried to, like, do the jig in front of them. Like, to tell the jokes. I've tried to crack wise with them. I've tried to be stern and say, everybody pay attention here. It just doesn't make it interesting. I, is it foolishness to say that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of that? 
for the liberation of me from the need to be interesting, from the liberation of our hearts, the students' heart and my heart, to be bored with the, with the truth of Christianity. I can't do it. I've tried to do it, and I'm done trying to do it. I actually feel myself starting to sink and settle to the level of, it's school, I'm going to go teach. They have to take notes. That's the way it works. That's just what, that's the way it's going to have to be. Please, Jesus, do not let me settle for that. That's caving into these idols that I've created. It's not allowing the gospel to be the gospel. And wherever you're at, look, a lot of you are in marriages that lack a lot of intimacy, and you crave that, and you both, both of you, you remember the days when that was there, and now it's gone, and you've tried all the tricks. You've tried nice guy, you've tried the cold shoulder to see if you can get them to pay attention to you, you've tried reading books together maybe, even if you're super serious, and nothing's worked, and I'm here to tell you that the gospel is the power of God to save you from that bad marriage, to rescue your marriage. Some of you, I said, Angel and I were having a conversation the other night with a friend who's telling his, high, his teenage son, look, that girl you're dating, she's nice, it's not going to work out. And the son's like, hey, look, I know what I'm doing. Now, I don't know if the son's right or the parents are right, but I do know that that level of like disengagement in the relationship feels like it's this massive thing, it's this massive wall that can't be removed. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save your family relationships. Some of you worry, you have a hard time sleeping because you wake up in the middle of the night and you think about the fact that you are that you have to spend more money than you have right now. And that there's no way that you can see possible that you're financially going to make it. it. It just obsesses you. And for other people, it's other things. It's relationships. It's this comment that you made at work that wakes you up in the night and you replay it over and over and over and over in your head. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save you from all of that. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, all your loneliness, all of my boring teaching, all of my insecurities... All of my sins, my anger, my greed, my lust, all of my fear of death, all of my sicknesses, all of my future death, all of that was covered up by the blood of Jesus and by the power of the gospel, God is fixing that things, those things. That's the reality of Advent. That's what we're here for the next four weeks to chase after. That's the front wheel of the bicycle. God in Jesus Christ is going to fix all of your problems. Amen.